0: As you turn in your Bibles to the 18th chapter of Acts, I would say what a blessed day it is. Come together to worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord has added to his church these new members, one coming by baptism today. We are privileged to take part today as a church in the outward and ordinary means of grace. Amen. Prayer. Which includes our singing, baptism, which pictures a, a person in Christ, the Lord's table, which we'll come to shortly, which is a picture of Christ Himself, and the ministry of the Word. Our catechism teaches us that the Word is made effectual for the convincing and converting of sinners in its reading. But especially in its preaching, not because this preacher or any preacher is anything special or has something to offer. Rather, especially preaching because the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two edged sword. So as we come to the word today, we come with reverence. We'll read from Acts chapter 18 verses 18 through 28 through the end of the chapter. And then we'll call on God in prayer to bless his word. Acts 18 verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Sincrea he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus And he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, "Uh, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. Verse 22. When he had landed in Caesarea, he went up. And greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24: Now a man named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately or more completely. Verse 27, and when he wanted to go to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Great God of Scripture, we ask your blessing now on your word and the preaching of it. Make it effectual to us, we pray. Sanctify saints by your word, the truth of your word. Save sinners, drawing them to Jesus Christ. By your word and spirit, hide this preacher and let us hear the voice of our risen Lord in this hour. We ask all this for the edification of your church and for your glory. Amen. Amen. It's been a while since we've been in Acts chapter 18, but if we'll remember last we were here, Paul was in Corinth. He was in Corinth and he was fearful and fearful for good reason. Paul had had many harrowing experiences which would leave any man in fear, concerned for his well-being, maybe even his life. But we also remember Paul being in Corinth and being in fear that he had received a special promise from God in a vision. God promised to protect Paul that no harm would come to him. And that's exactly what God did. He protected him. Even when the Jews rose up and when they brought Paul before Gallio. God providentially protected Paul. That's hard to say, providentially protected Paul. And Paul came to no harm. All this just in review. This is what has happened. And our text says, we pick up here, he remained Many days, your your translation may say sometime. Literally, the word here is sufficient days. This sentence, Paul remained here sufficient days. He remained here many days. It covers a long period of time. It covers a year and a half of time. We kind of gloss over it with this one sentence. But this time that Paul is in Corinth is sufficient for him to do the work of ministry, to do the work of planting the church, there, preaching and teaching, nurturing this new church. And this gives us insight into Paul's preference. He had been places where he was run out of town, but... Paul's preference would have been not to be leaving town so quickly, but he would prefer to stay many days, to stay sufficient days. And here in Corinth, Paul has that opportunity and he takes it to stay sufficient days church we are learning as we work through the book of acts we're learning the god-ordained biblical way of doing things and here we learn that a mission work a church planting effort may take some time sometimes we're ready for things to move on quickly this church has been planted for three months why is it not booming well it takes sufficient time we can't always say that well Paul was in Corinth 18 months, so that's how long it should take. We can't always say that, but we do know that it should take sufficient time. We should take sufficient time. Paul, having remained many days longer, says he took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila. We learn here also that there comes a time for a missionary to leave, to move on. Paul had other missionary work to do. He needed to leave Corinth. Paul had also collected an offering for the relief of the poor saints in Jerusalem at that church, and he needed to deliver that offering to them. And Paul had also been sent out on this missionary work by a church. Because churches plant churches. Churches send missionaries. And those planting and sending churches should be getting updates. And Paul was not putting all this on Facebook at that time. They needed an update and he'd have to go there to give it. This missionary, even when it is the apostle Paul, is obligated to report back to the sending church. Paul needs to go back to Antioch and to give a report of what has been done for the cause of Christ. We also see in this verse that Priscilla and Aquila leave Corinth with Paul and travel with him for a time. What a blessing this is. To Paul and to the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, to have these who can, because of their place in life, pick up and travel with Paul, and they do that very thing. We've met this married couple before. Now we have them traveling with Paul. In verse eighteen: We read in Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. He had his haircut for he was keeping a vow. This haircut has been the topic of many sermons. And there have been many comments on this vow that is mentioned here. We are not going to dwell here for very long. But I would like to point out the reasons why. If you're wondering why aren't we spending time on this. I want to point out the reasons why we're not focusing here on this haircut and this vow. In the first place, scholars disagree on what's happening here. For example, some agree with Linsky that the he here is not Paul. Linsky says because of the structure, this cannot mean that Paul had a haircut and Paul made a vow. He says that it must be Aquila who had the haircut and made the vow. And I will admit to you that I find Linsky's argument compelling. Others are certain that it was Paul and they have reasons to look at the text and to say this has to be Paul. And I must admit to you that I find that compelling. (laughs) So I am not in a position to take a firm position on even who this is. So we certainly can't build a whole sermon on a vow and a haircut when we're not even really sure who this is. So the second reason we won't spend a lot of time here, we're spending time saying where we're not spending time here, but the second reason is we don't know anything about this vow. We mentioned here, it's mentioned here that there is a vow and some assume that this is a Nazarite vow, but there are elements, I believe, which don't fit the Nazarite theory. Others hold to this as well. First, the haircut for a Nazarite vow would come at the end of the vow, not at the beginning. And the Nazarite haircut would happen in Jerusalem at the temple where the hair would be burned on an altar. But here, Paul has his haircut in synchrea and it seems that this is at the beginning of the vow. So this doesn't fit a Nazarite vow. One of the strongest arguments that this is not a Nazarite vow is that the Nazarite vow, the, the process would also include a sin offering. And I find it hard to believe that this Jew, Pharisee, persecutor of the church who has now been radically, powerfully, wonderfully saved who preaches and teaches that Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice for sin, I can't believe that man would offer a sin offering that may point away from the Lamb of God who died for sin. I have a hard time believing this is a Nazarite vow. Some have supposed that this haircut and vow might have just then, so that Paul would be better accepted in Jerusalem when he gets there. I, I don't know what's going on. So we're not spending a lot of time here with this haircut and this vow for those reasons. Verse 19, they came to Ephesus and he left them there And he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. I left this out of my notes, this last little piece, so let's just address it while we're here. He himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Paul has already declared that his ministry would turn from the Jews and be directed toward the Gentiles. He is the apostle to the Gentiles. And as a whole, his ministry is a Gentile ministry. But this shows us that he has not lost his love and his heart for the Jews. He has not lost his love for them, and he enters here again to the synagogue and reasons with them. They come to they've come to Ephesus. Paul, those who travel with him, Priscilla and Aquila, with him now, enter Ephesus. And we recognize the name of this city. Because there's a book of the Bible, a letter written by Paul to the church in this city, the book of Ephesians. So we recognize this city of Ephesus, but there's something else here that we should recognize. Remember back in our study when Paul wanted to go to Asia to do ministry, but the Holy Spirit prevented him. The Holy Spirit prevented him. Paul was told no to ministry in Asia. But we remember that as soon as he got to Macedonia, the first person that he met there was an Asian woman named Lydia. And and now we see that God has providentially brought Paul after all this time to this Asian city of Ephesus. The door that God had closed It's now open. And we learn from this. When God prevents something, sometimes it's only a temporary closure. That's what happened here. Ephesus was closed, but now Ephesus is open for ministry. And it will be a place of ministry for Paul for a long time to come. How exciting this must have been for Paul, He wanted to minister in Asia. Now he's here, this place where he wanted to be. Now it's become a reality. And, and things are not like those other cities where things have been going so badly. He's been beaten. He's been left for dead, stoned. He's been run out of town. But verse 20 says, they in Ephesus ask him to stay longer. Paul must be... Must be thinking, I've never experienced this. The word is being preached, the gospel is being believed. People are glad to have this preacher of Jesus Christ with them. Rather than beat him, rather than run him out of town, they ask him to stay. Surely, Paul will cancel all other plans. Surely, he'll stay here in Ephesus for however long it takes, surely Paul will accept this invitation and he will consent to their request. Let's see verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. What a surprise. This is, this is shocking to us. But it shows us again that the missionary has great latitude in his decision making and his scheduling just like missionaries and church planners need to have today. And it reminds us of the importance of Paul returning to Antioch to give an account, to report to his sending church. But Paul doesn't say, no, I'm not staying and just leave as an uncaring man, as one who has no compassion. He is compassionate. And verse 19 tells us that he leaves the Ephesians some help. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. Let us learn here the value of every Christian layperson in the church. You may not be a preacher. You may not be an officer of the church, but you are a value to the church. You can be a help. We will see today and throughout the New Testament as we read, as we study what Priscilla and Aquila did directly, and then the effects of what they did through Apollos, and we will see that they gave of themselves to this new body of believers. Most of you are not Paul, but you can be Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 21, taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills. He set sail from Ephesus. Paul leaves, but he makes it clear that he would like to return to Ephesus. I will return to you. This is his desire, and we know because we've read ahead, right? We know that this happens. In the very next chapter, we'll see that he returns. But Paul doesn't just say to them, I'm leaving, but I'll be back. He adds a qualifying statement. Maybe he adds this to remind himself that he is not the Lord of his own life. Maybe he adds this to teach the believers in Ephesus about the sovereignty, about the providence of God. Paul says, I will return to you if God wills. Paul's will is subject to God's will. If God wills, then I will. Christians, would that we were more mindful of how we speak to one another, to the world, and how we think within ourselves. Are your plans surrendered to to God's plan? Is your will yielded to God's will? Too often we try to bend God to fit our will. We need to remember who is God and who is bought with a price. And we need to say with James, if the Lord wills, I will do this and I will do that. Here Paul surrenders his will. His will is surrendered, but he communicates this. If the Lord wills, I will return. When he landed in Caesarea, verse 22, look closely. When he landed in Caesarea, he went up. He went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Now, I won't ask you to do this now, but it might benefit to look at the map sometimes and see what's happening here. There's there's no mention in verse 22 that Paul went to Jerusalem and to the cursory reading, we might say that Paul never went to that city, but we see here that he did in the words, he went up and then he went down to Antioch. Now, if we looked at that map, we would see that Antioch was north of Caesarea, almost due north, a little bit to the east, but but way north. But never would a Jew say, I am going down to Jerusalem. They always would speak of Jerusalem as the highest place. So while you and I might think I'm going down, up to Antioch, Paul says that it says here that he went down to Antioch. As the Jews, the Jewish mind would never say I'm going down to Jerusalem. They always went up to Jerusalem. They would also say from Jerusalem, I'm going down to wherever they went, even if it was due north, even if it was to a higher elevation, I'm going down from Jerusalem. So we see here that Paul went up. That means he went to Jerusalem. And then he went down, heading almost due north to Antioch. Paul would have greeted the apostles there in Jerusalem. He would have greeted the church delivering that offering that he had collected on his journey. Then it would be time for him to go to his sending church back to Antioch to report on all that had been done. Verse 23 says, as he's been in Antioch, having spent some time there, he left. Now, this was not a quick overnight in Antioch. He spent some time there. We don't know how long that was, but it was some time. And then he left. Paul is sent out again. And this marks the beginning of his third missionary journey. And we'll see that Paul will indeed return to Ephesus. But first, in verse 23, we find that this verse ends with, and he passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul's not the kind of missionary church planter who leaves a place and then never returns. Out of sight, out of mind. I haven't even thought about those people. No, Paul revisits the places where he has been, strengthening the disciples. What a ministry, what a heart for those people. We come to verse 24, we meet this man named Apollos. We'll run into Apollos again. He will become a pretty important figure in the building of the early church. He's not an apostle like Paul. He's not nearly as important a figure as Paul, but he is significant enough that some people, not because Apollos asked, not because he liked it, but some people aligned themselves politically behind Apollos within the church. He didn't want this, but people would play political power games and say things like I am of Apollos and others would say I am of Paul and they had to be corrected in this they had to be reminded that that Paul did not die for any one of them they had to be reminded that Apollos died on behalf of no one These men, Paul and Apollos, were servants of Jesus Christ. And the cult of personality had no place in the church of Jesus Christ. And I'd like to say that just slightly different. The cult of personality has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Apollos did important work. He watered the seed that Paul planted. And it's here in this text that we're introduced to Apollos for the first time. Read with me again, verse 24. Now a man named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and we're going to address that next time, he begins to speak out boldly in the synagogue. This text tells us that Apollos was an eloquent man. It is sometimes overlooked, sometimes ignored, that a man who is to preach and teach the word of God should have a measure of eloquence. Now, before you say out loud what we're all thinking, preacher, we know you are not exactly flowery and beautiful in your speech. We need to understand what is meant by this word here translated eloquent. As it's used here, this word means uh, fluent in speech, persuasive in speech, able to articulate or to express clearly and accurately so it's not just being silver-tongued but it's to be an adequate communicator it never ceases to amaze how poor we are as people at communicating educated people have trouble constructing sentences that convey ideas effectively to others. Often when there's conflict between people, it started or it was escalated because of poor communication. Sloppy speech, lazy listening, was eloquent in his communication. And preachers of the word of God don't have to be silver tongued but they must be able to communicate truth, to explain concepts such as holiness and sin, and substitution, justice, mercy, grace, and faith, to be able to speak about the things of scripture, the things of God, the the gospel in a way that people can understand. Churches sometimes are taken in by flowery language. Sometimes we love too much the turn of phrase that tickles the ear. And we trade the gold coins of truth for the tinkling brass bell that pleases the ear. Ever. Paulus was eloquent, but we also find the importance of a minister of the word of God to be instructed in the word. Verse twenty-four says he was mighty in Scripture and fervent in spirit. Those two things are collected, are, are connected. These things are certainly related because might or power in Scripture informed Apollos' fervent spirit. And we read in verse 25 that he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Teaching and speaking accurately the things concerning Jesus. It's doctrine. In some circles, accuracy Precision with the word, precision with the doctrines of the faith, it's almost considered as opposing sincerity. Well, if you're sincere, as long as you're sincere, it doesn't matter what you say. That's not true. Some think if you're truly sincere, you don't you don't want to be put off by things like accuracy and precision. Preachers say things like, I just want to speak to you from the heart. Christians, the scripture teaches us that the heart of man is deceitful and wicked. So the day that I speak to you from my heart, that's the day you should stop listening. You should demand of your preacher of all those who preach the Word, that they speak the Word of God. That's what we require. The only thing that a preacher has that is worth listening to is when he accurately, precisely preaches the Scripture, preaches Christ and Him crucified. Demand of your preacher, speak the Word. To speak the word, a man must know the word. A man must study to show himself an approved workman. A man who says, I'm not much for study. I'm not much for all that reading. That man may be, and, and we can debate this, but that man may be a fine Christian man, but he'll never be a minister of the word of God. He'll never be a valuable teacher The church. Apollos was eloquent. He was a good communicator, but he was instructed in the scripture to the point that he was mighty, powerful in the word. Look down at verse 28. Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public. He was powerful in preaching because he was powerful in the word. He was mighty in Scripture that he might be mighty in sermon. Those things are connected. If a preacher is eloquent without might in the Scripture, then God's people will not grow. Sinners will not be saved. The pulpit is not the ministry of the Word. It's just a weekly talk. If the preacher is mighty in Scripture but has no ability to communicate that, then the Word of God is lost in the delivery. Both have to be there. Now, maybe there's a man listening who aspires to be a minister of the Word of God who feels inadequate in one or both of these areas. First, I would say to you, welcome. Welcome. There's good news here. Might. Power in the Scripture. Scripture. It is available through diligent study. And effectiveness in communication can also be learned to a certain extent. Now there are some who are just not ever going to be communicators. And for those we need to help them find a vocation. But for those who are gifted and equipped by God, the communication muscles can be strengthened and developed. And that's good news for all of us. In closing, let's look back to the last part of verse 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they heard Apollos, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, more completely. He was teaching and preaching things about Jesus, but he only had the baptism of John. He hadn't heard the whole Story. He hadn't had all the information. And Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and teach him. This is another reminder for us of the value and effectiveness of a layperson in the church. Priscilla and Aquila benefited the Church of Jesus Christ by this quiet, off to the side help. That they gave Apollos. They are teaching the teacher. But not in a way that usurps or undermines. They're, They're doing this in a way that he can receive it. And it sharpens Apollos even more. He's more accurate now. He's more precise. Priscilla and Aquila are not ministers. They're not teachers in an official capacity. We really reserve those words, the minister or preacher and teacher, to those who are gifted of God and duly called to minister the word in the church. Ministry in the church is ministering the word, but this couple is serving in a way that lay people can serve. They are teaching in a different way. This is their gifting, and they use it as they have opportunity. Some of you will never be ordained to the gospel ministry. Most of you will never be ordained to the gospel ministry. But you have knowledge of scripture. You have understanding in the doctrines of the faith. And you will serve Christ when you speak to others. When you have conversations with others and help them. Oftentimes those conversations are helpful to everyone involved. You can serve Christ as Priscilla and Aquila did. Some of you will teach your children or your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews. You can teach them to pray, to read scripture. You can teach them about Jesus. You can teach them that they owe their obedience and love to him. Priscilla and Aquila served God as lay people within the church. Lastly, we'll look at verse 28. Speaking of Apollos, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scripture that Jesus was the Christ. By the scripture... That Jesus was the Christ. This is the essence of church ministry, for for all church ministry. The essence demonstrated by the Scripture that Jesus is the Christ, demonstrated by the Scripture. This is preaching. This is teaching. This is having those discussions. This is refuting error. This is promoting truth. This preaching and teaching is the primary means for ministry of the Word in the church. Apollos is demonstrating by the Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. Too many ministries today try to demonstrate by the Scripture some moral code to live by. Try to demonstrate by the Scripture something other than Jesus Christ. Apollos demonstrated by the Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. Christianity is not a new religion. It's as old as creation. It was in the heart of God to save people by a redeemer before the world was. The Jews had looked for and expected a promised Messiah. And Apollos needed to show them from the word of God. Demonstrating from the scripture that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. Jesus was the savior they needed. And he is still the savior that sinful men and women need. Nothing done in the church matters unless it points us to Christ. He lived to earn our righteousness. He died to pay for our sins and he rose victorious over death, hell, and the grave to give us eternal life. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great salvation that we have in him. We thank you for the examples of scripture, of Paul and Apollos and others who show us how we are to act as a church. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to demand that our ministers be faithful to your word. And we pray that you would grow us up in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. God, we pray that you would encourage and strengthen those within the church who hold no position, who hold no title, but who love you, who love your word, that you would help them give them opportunity and give them boldness to to speak to others teach, to teach their children, we pray that you would bless those fathers and mothers who go through the catechism, who read passages from your word, who teach their children the hymns of the faith. We pray that you bless their efforts in drawing our children to Christ, bringing them to saving knowledge. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.